Morning, church. Morning. As we studied the book of Hebrews in class, we have found much to think about, and it has led us to some very fruitful discussions where we gain greater understanding of the Lord's word. I would like to continue a bit in that book this morning and discuss some things about the faith shown by Noah. So please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. And that's going to be our focus this morning, Hebrews 11 and 7. And I'll read from the New King James. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, preparing an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. The event of the flood, Noah and the ark, is one of the great miracles that people often ridicule and mock. They have trouble wrapping their heads around this event and what took place, and so they want to dismiss it. Jesus, when talking about the coming of the Son of Man, said in Matthew 24, verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus referred to Noah and the flood. If our Lord believed it, that should settle it. Let's look at our text from Hebrews in detail. And as we do, we will see that Hebrews 11.7 can be divided into five statements related to Noah's faith. The first statement, and this is the first point I want to make, the first lesson we need to learn. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. To fully appreciate and understand this statement, we need to consider a few verses from Genesis chapter 6. I wondered when I read this statement for studying for class, what exactly is involved in the statement where it says, Noah was warned of God of things not seen yet? We see in Genesis chapter 6 at verse 5 that in Noah's time, People had become very wicked. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God did not make man in a corrupt state. They were created in a state of innocence. They decided, made the decision to transgress the will of God. We were told what happened. Adam was instructed, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. If they transgressed the will of God, they would die. You know how the serpent came along, tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit? She gave in to the temptation, she ate of the fruit, and she gave it to Adam, and he ate as well. At that point, sin and death entered the world 
and things changed. By the time Noah came on the scene, several generations had passed. The population of the earth had grown since the days of Adam and Eve. Genesis 6 and 5 sums up just how wicked man had become. We notice that God did not make people in that state. People got in that state because they wanted to. People made the decisions to transgress the will of God. Man's wickedness affected God to the point where God decided to destroy all of mankind as well as the creatures that he had created. Genesis 6, verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. What we see here is the total corruption of humanity. The very citadel of human life, the heart, which in Hebrew thought meant the mind, was devoted exclusively to the contemplation of evil. It would be hard to devise a sentence that would more effectively portray the corruption of humanity than does Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This is the result of judicial hardening. The judicial hardening of humanity that was prophesied by Genesis 6 and 3, where is foretold the withdrawal of the Spirit of God from striving with mankind. The entire Bible deals with the phenomenon of judicial hardening, disobedience. We need to appreciate the very next verse now, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We know how wicked man had become. We heard how God felt about it. And yet there was one righteous man on the face of the earth, Noah. Why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Verse 9. This is a genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. This explains to us why Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Consequently, God decided to spare Noah from the destruction that he was about to bring upon the earth. Remember, we're looking at these verses for the purpose of helping us understand that Noah was warned of God of things not seen yet. Look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This verse shows us that God informed Noah he was going to destroy life on earth. To see how, we now look at verse 17. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God decided to destroy the earth with a flood of waters. Well, that was something new. No one had ever seen a flood like that. Note, we're illustrating from the book of Genesis what the writer of Hebrews was teaching when he said that Noah was warned of God of things not seen yet. No one, including Noah, had ever seen so great a flood. How did Noah react? 
Through faith, Noah believed what God had said. Noah did not stand there and argue with God and say, I don't believe that. I've never seen a flood like that. Noah, God said it, and Noah believed it, and that settled it. Through his faith, Noah believed what God had said. And that reminds us of Hebrews 11 and 1, doesn't it? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What exactly caused Noah to listen when God warned him about something that had never been seen before? That brings us to the second statement we want to consider. Hebrews eleven seven again. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. And I'll stop right there. Noah was moved with fear. Well, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word fear, I think about being afraid of something. That's the way we use the word. The Bible uses the word fear in that sense as well. But often the Bible uses the word fear to refer to reverence or respect for God. In the Bible, fear and obeying God are often joined together. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 at verse 13, Solomon is talking about the conclusion of the whole matter, and he says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Noah's fear moved him or motivated him to do something. What did Noah's fear move him to do? That brings us to the third statement we want to look at. Hebrews eleven seven again. Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Noah was warned of God of things not seen yet. Noah was moved with fear. What did his fear move him to do? He prepared that ark. As we examine what is written in the book of Genesis, we see that God gave specific instructions for building the ark and for placing the animals inside. God even specified the type of wood that was to be used. He specified gopher wood. Now today, we do not know exactly what this wood was. We do know some things from the text, though. It was available in sufficient quantities for the work. And the most important thing is, Noah understood. Not only did God specify the kind of wood that was to be used, he gave specific dimensions for building the ark. If God had just said, Noah, I want you to build this great big ark and left it at that, Noah would have been free to make some decisions about the kind of wood he would use, the dimensions, and so on. But when God specified what he wanted, that eliminated everything else. God also did not have to go down and a list and say to Noah, I don't want you to use this kind of wood or that kind of wood. When he specified gopher wood, that eliminated everything else. A lot of people do not understand this principle when it comes to studying the Bible. When God specifies in his word what he wants, that eliminates everything else. Some people take the approach, if God has not specifically condemned something, then we're free to do it. Not the case, is it? The Bible teaches us whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians and 17. That means we do those things that the Lord has authorized us to do in his word. When he authorizes a particular matter, that eliminates everything else. 
Now, I've used this illustration before. I think maybe Mark has, too. It uh, makes a point, so I'm going to repeat it. Years and years ago, before Johnny was old enough to drive, he went everywhere on his bicycle. In the neighborhood where Johnny lived, there was a mom-and-pop store that sold groceries. Sometimes Johnny's mother would need a few things that were available in the store, and she would say, Johnny, I want you to get on your bicycle and go to the store and buy... I don't know, gallon of milk, loaf of bread, dozen eggs, whatever, whatever she wanted. When his mother specified get on her bicycle, that meant don't walk. He was certainly not old enough to drive a car. He didn't have a driver's license, but she didn't have to go through all that. When she said get on your bicycle, that specified what she wanted Johnny to do. He did have a choice to make, though. He would do what she wanted or he would not. What would he do? Well, Johnny was not a dumb kid. He was pretty sharp. And he learned early on, years before, as a matter of fact, when Mama said something, you do what she says, or there are consequences. When she told him exactly what to buy, she did not have to go down a list and say, now, Johnny, don't buy a Snickers candy bar. He may have loved them, but she did not have to tell him not to buy one. She didn't have to say, now, Johnny, don't buy one of those Pepsi-flavored ices that you love. She didn't have to go down a list and tell him what not to get. She told him what to get, and that eliminated everything else. Besides that, Mama was pretty sharp. She gave him the exact amount of money she need, he needed to buy the things that she wanted him to buy. Mothers are smart like that. They remove temptation for their children to go beyond what was said. When God specified how Noah was to build the ark, he did not have to go down a list and tell Noah what not to do, because when he told Noah what to do, that eliminated everything else. And Noah understood that. You would think that people living today ought to be able to understand the same thing. God gave specific instructions for building the ark and placing the animals inside. And we notice in Genesis 6, that Noah did exactly what God told him to do, 6 and 22. Thus, Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Now look at the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. These verses are quite explicit, aren't they? Noah did exactly what God told him to do. At this point, I would like to tie in a statement from James 2 and 18 concerning faith. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Let's apply that to Noah. By obeying God's instructions, Noah was showing, demonstrating his faith. You recall the miracle when Jesus healed the paralyzed man? Jesus was teaching in a home, and it was packed with people. Some men had a friend that couldn't walk, and they wanted to bring him to the Lord so that the Lord would heal him. But when they got to the place where Jesus was, they could not get inside because there were so many people. I love how industrious these men were. They went up on the roof, took back some of the roofing, and let the man down. Look at what Jesus says. First, Matthew's account. Matthew 9, verse 2. And Jesus 
seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Next, Mark 2 and 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And finally, Luke 5 and 20. So when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Is faith something you can put in a container and see? No, but it is active. When Jesus saw the actions of these men who brought their friend to be healed, he observed their faith. I think we can say that about Noah. Noah did what God told him to do. Consequently, he demonstrated his faith, which brings us to the fourth statement made about Noah and his faith. Hebrews eleven seven again, by which he condemned the world. We need to be sure we understand what that means. Did Noah condemn the world in the sense that he destroyed it? No, of course not. That was beyond his power. God is the one who destroyed the earth with the flood. Yet Noah did condemn the world. How did he do that? Noah condemned the world by refusing to be like the world. We are told how wicked men had become, and Noah did not go along with everyone else. There's an interesting statement found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The implication is clear that Noah attempted to persuade his contemporaries to renounce their evil ways and turn to God. There were eight souls saved in the ark, Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. Well, Noah didn't build that ark in a day or two. It took him a long time. I'm assuming from what the Bible says that while he was building the ark, he was trying to get people to repent. But no one outside of his family listened. Noah refused to be condemned by the rest of the, with the rest of the world. He knew that he had to obey God, even if no one else in the whole world did. We would do well to keep that in mind today. We must be faithful to God and his word, even if no one else is. There's always pressure on people to compromise with the world. And when we do that, we transgress the will of God. Noah understood that he had to obey God, even if no one else on the face of the earth did. Yes, Noah refused to be condemned of the world, and in that sense, he condemned the world. That brings us to the fifth statement that we want to point out concerning Noah and his faith. Hebrews eleven seven became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah received the reward that God had reserved for him. This means that even godly Noah was not saved by his own works or merit. His faithful obedience pleased God, who made him an heir of the righteousness yet to be revealed 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time would appear and fulfill all righteousness. Noah was the very first man in the Bible to be designated righteous. And even then, it was not righteousness from within, but from above. Westcott put it this way, the righteousness was something which came to him as having its source without, yet according to a certain law. It was his by an unquestionable right. It corresponded to the position of a son, and this position Noah showed by his conduct to be his. Well, let's make a few points of application now. We certainly need to correctly understand what the Bible has to say concerning Noah's faith, and then we need to make the proper application. There are so many things that we could talk about concerning Noah and the ark. However, I suggest we apply what we've talked about today in reference to Noah's faith. God warned Noah about things that had never been seen. God has done the same thing for us. Let's look at a few scriptures. Second Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, and I'm going to read starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Peter is very explicit in showing us that when Jesus comes back, everything will be burned up. It can't be made any clearer than Peter made it. Have you ever seen any destruction like that? We're familiar with forest fires and damage they can do, and I think about what happened on 9-11. And that image is burned in my mind. I can't get rid of it. I see the smoke rising over New York City, and it seemed to go on for days. But think about it. The earth, the elements, everything in the universe burned up. Have we ever seen anything like that? Of course we haven't. Do we believe it's going to happen? Well, I do. Why? Because God said so. Just as God warned Noah about coming destruction, things that had never been seen. He also warned us of things that have never been seen. I've never seen that kind of destruction, but I believe it's going to occur because God said so. Let's consider another warning. Those who do not obey the gospel will be punished. And I'm in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know the Lord and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. I have never seen everlasting destruction, have you? The Bible says it's going to occur. How do we know these things will occur? The same way Noah knew that the earth was going to be destroyed by flood, faith. 
We have read what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Rahab did, remember? It's also what Noah did. He set a wonderful example before us. Noah was warned of things that had never been seen, and he acted on God's warnings. The Bible gives us some warnings of things that had never been seen, and we ought to follow Noah's example and be prepared. Just as fear moved Noah to obey God, fear ought to motivate us to do what God wants us to do. What does God want us to do to be prepared for the coming destruction? Let's let Peter tell us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, 1 Peter 3 and 20, who formerly were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the Lord gave the Great Commission, he told his apostles to preach the gospel to every creature. He then said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's what Peter's writing about here. And he's using an illustration from what happened to Noah and his family. There were eight souls prepared for the coming flood that day. They were in the ark and they were spared. To be prepared, we need to follow the Lord's instructions. Noah refused to be like the rest of the world. We emphasized this earlier and in that sense, he condemned the world. The Bible teaches us we must not conform to the world. Romans 12, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Noah refused to be like the rest of the world, and the Bible teaches us that we are also to refuse to be like the rest of the world. And then if we remain faithful unto God, we will receive a very special reward. And that's the way Hebrews 11 and 7 concludes. Noah received what he was promised as a reward, Revelation 2 and 10 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. And I want to go on to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse 1. Throughout Hebrews 11, we have read about faith that was demonstrated by the great men and women of the Old Testament. Noah was just one of them. When we think about Noah's example and the example set by these other great Bible people, we ought to be encouraged to do what this next verse tells us. You see, all the information in chapter 11 is leading up to this concluding statement in verse 1 of chapter 12, which starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Noah's faith ought to encourage us to do what this verse teaches us, to run with endurance, with patience, the race that is set before us. These witnesses that we have read about interpret to us the meaning of our struggle, and they bear testimony to the certainty of our success if we are faithful to the end of the race. The weight we carry in our race is anything that will slow us down. It is any hindrance that can get in the way or impede the Christian's progress. Just as the runner of a race travels as lightly as possible, the Christian must avoid being weighed down with all kinds of worldly duties and commitments. Many of them, no doubt, worthy. Yet one fact is certain. No one can do all that the world wants and be a good Christian too. Far too many of the children of the king allow their time, talent, and money to be consumed by secondary things. Those things are called weights when we understand the effect they have on the dedication of us to Christ and to his cause here on earth. And by the way, this is also true of congregations who let worldly activities take up their resources. The sin that ensnares us to halt our running, excuse me, the sin that ensnares us to halt our running of the race refers to any conduct inherently unrighteous, which is always the mortal enemy of faith. I apologize. We learn from the New Testament how to be saved. We need to hear the word, believe in Jesus, repent of our sins, confess our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of our sins. If we follow these steps, the Lord adds us to his church. Perhaps there's someone in the assembly today with the need to be buried with Christ in baptism. If you have never done these things, we urge you to do so today. If anyone has this need or desires the prayers of faithful Christians on their behalf, we encourage them to come forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.